Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 93. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. I am so excited about this episode because, I don't know, maybe it's just a little relaxed. It lets us explore the terrain, but there's a lot of good stuff to get into. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff. Jenna? Jenna, who is one of the very great Lannisters. I mean, like, what, they're 50-50, you know? Yeah, every time the gods flip a coin, a Lannister is born, and also a Targaryen. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Jenna, (laughs) Jenna, though, is like, she is the, this whole episode, everyone's like, oh, Tywin's a man in a thousand, and by everyone, I mean Emin Frey, but also Davin, and everyone's just like, I'm gonna suck the dick of Tywin's ghost right now in front of you, Jamie. but Jenna's like the only one that tells it to him how it is. Yeah, totally. I'm really excited to get into it. And talk about it. But before we do that, we have uh, quite a few emails and tweets of note and even some announcements after that. We're switching up the order that we announce some of these things. Yes, first we had a tweet from our friend and patron, Nick Fox. Nick said, I'm going to ask you something. Feel free not to answer. But you guys know us. You all know us. We are going to answer. Nick asked if Thoros of Mir could birth the Shadow Baby. How would that work? You know what I mean. Like, are we looking at an all fours sort of situation or, you know, what? Hmm. Hmm. So I thought about this actually quite a bit. Which answer do we (laughs) want to give? Like, do we want the serious answer or do we want like a... So there's a part of me that actually kind of wonders, is like shadow binding like... Only I have been wondering it. I mean, we have Quaith, right? Only biologically, like, female or something. There is, like... And in a way, I think some of the messages of the story would relate to that, right? Like, just the idea of a magical thing being overtly female. I think that's interesting. Just that. I think there's also something, like, kind of, I don't know, Freudian about it, right? Like, the the scary boom. Right, and I mean that that seems in line with some of the things that George has been doing. But I mean, I guess it's possible that shadow binding could, you know, like maybe Thoros. It's not like shadow binding when giving birth to a baby doesn't ask for some life force on the part uh, of a man, right? Like there's there's definitely some things that are fucked up about it, and I wouldn't be surprised if maybe shadow binding if like there were male shadow binders also thoros of mir isn't a shadow binder so that's worth noting he's a red priest melisandra right. learned this likely in a shy she's called melisandra of a shy and they're separate they're separate practices and she justifies right it sounds like the way she explains shadow binding to davos feels like a justification to make it mesh within her faith so i don't know that thoros of mir is even capable of doing this um Uh, In terms of studying. I also think that, like, so there's no explicit mention of it being explicitly just female, but there's also no indication of the opposite. And the only two we know are Melisandre and Quaith, right, who are both female-esque. And based kind of on what's presented, it makes me wonder if it just, like, does require a womb for that or some sort of womb. And obviously, I guess... George is never going to explain this probably to us. Uh, uh, I mean, the male red priests, you know, like Thoros, Mikoro, Benero, they can't shadow bind. And I'm wondering if it's not necessarily like something we get gifted 
to like a priest or priestess of her lord because we know that Melisandre had to go and had to like actually learn it for ages yeah. and ages and dedicated herself to it. So I really do think it might just be kind of a female thing, like an avatar, right? Like Suki. Huh. I mean, it, it could be, or it could be, it could be like, I mean, what I'm also thinking is it could be because there is that fucked up element. If there are male shadow binders, do they, it's, it's again, a kind of fucked up ritual. Do they just like go find a womb, a, a female person? And That's then, like, the next thought I had is because right. only death can pay for life, right? So yeah. would it be like you're sacrificing the other person? Anyways, if he got pregnant, I think it would be out of his dick, maybe. Like, could you imagine him just like pissing out a shadow baby? Uh, That or like a cesarean? I mean, yeah, a butthole or cesarean. I'm also thinking kind of like, I don't know. Mm. Oh, or remember Zeus? Athena just came yeah. out of his head. We don't know that this could have just <laughs> come out of his head. It does feel like that, right? Like, total, like, Greek kind of story. That's funny, especially with some of the Lannister stuff we're about to get into so today. I, it could come out of, yes, his butthole. He could poop it out. He could jizz it out over and over until it's enough shadow. That would take a while. Like, what if you were in a very weird circle? I mean, what would happen if you didn't finish and someone killed you? Listen, there's a lot to think about. There's Nick, a you've lot. You've given us a lot, a lot here. to uh, to digest. To digest is one like, is one shadow baby come. What? Oh, <laughs> yes, that's right. I did just say that. You're right. I I, I <laughs> blocked that out immediately. What are we even talking about? <laughs> You know, I did tell Nick when Nick put this question forth that this is like top of the episode stuff. He was all very upset. He's like, maybe you're going to block me after this one, you guys. And I'm like, no, we're we're going to put this at the very top of the episode, Nick. This Do you know not, us? Yeah, this is not block worthy. This is, in fact, metal worthy. This is like yeah. a pin tweet worthy. He should pin this tweet. Nick, you should pin, pin this tweet. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, Nick also, I think, reached out recently asking what chapter we would like him to do if he did an episode of Girls Gone Canon, which we've been asking all of you to do for so long. So. I don't want to give a chapter. I want to, I think the true tribute, right, is to hear what all of you think <laughs> is the chapter we want. Tell me what you think I want. It doesn't even have to be a full chapter. You know, it could be just a thought. It could be, uh, it has to be from the heart, just like the shadow baby or the dick, depending <laughs> mm -hmm. on what you believe. Eliana, Great answers. I'm glad we had this conversation. Me about, too. Uh, honestly, though, I really didn't think about it at first, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm almost 700% certain there are not male shadowbinders. It really feels like there aren't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. All right. And then we also got an email of note from Leanne. And Leanne says, I started listening to your podcast a while ago. I love your analysis and references to all the kids' films and cartoons. Uh, we, as you all know, we just made a reference to Avatar The Last Air Bundle. Uh, <laughs> when I first started listening, I skipped Barris and Quentin and Ariane because I was too excited to hear what you had to say about Sansa. Now that I'm all caught up, I've gone back to listen to these POVs and couldn't help but, and they put it in parentheses badly, I'm, I'm gonna, that, that needs to be Nick's, right? But draw Chloe a Quentin tattoo. It is so good. It's I, really I've good. never seen. I mean, we've had some fan art before, and I love every piece of I fan love art we them. get. Is it makes my life like 
we could lose our entire platform and these five pieces of fan art, that's all I want, you know? But this one, it has, and I'm going to describe it for you all. If you want to see it, uh, I think we're going to ask Leanne if it's okay to post it on Twitter and on Patreon, but we will post it. It has Quentin thinking, and it's important because there is a distinction between the thought bubble and the talk bubble. That's right. You didn't notice that? I didn't notice that. Man, this is a deep picture. It's detailed. Quentin is thinking locust, but he's saying dog, and it shows a dog speaking. And I just, I was moved. Can we make this our cover photo on Twitter? Yup. I'm not joking. I'm being very serious. Uh, Me either. So thank you, Leanne, because this has given me so much joy. Same. same. Uh, We were actually discussing, should we distribute it? Should, like, Chloe get, like, the dog tattooed and me the locust? But then, as she pointed out, she has less of an affinity towards dogs and already has a tattoo of House Clegane and the Hound, right? Right? And... I do feel the locusts are more associated with me, so I was like, do I just get both the locust and the dog and Chloe gets the Quentin? Hmm. I don't know, but I'm interested, and I really think there could be a lot of detailed line work going on with the locust, so I'm excited to see it upon your body, Eliana. So thank you, Leanne, for this. It brought us great joy. Chloe actually immediately messaged it to me when the email came in, because <laughs> I hadn't checked our email in a bit. I have to update some of my access on my different devices, which... She, like, immediately sent that. Thank you again, Leanne. We did get one last email of note we're going to bring up tonight. We will definitely come back with some more in our next Jamie episode. Our friend Milo sent us an email saying that they have been catching up on the backlog of A Song of Ice and Fire episodes. Awesome, because I know there's a backlog. We have been very adamant, so take your time, everyone. Enjoy them, please. Milo says he's caught up. No longer are there any previous ones to listen to, therefore you can keep up with them each week. Awesome, and wanted to say how much he appreciates the thought we put in each episode. In regards to last week's episode, it's admittedly a very close contest, but his favorite win of the episode was the term kettle wince. Thank you, Milo. Thank you. I win once again. Sorry, Eliana. I don't, I mean, you had a lot of really good ones last week, as Jimmy Mack on Twitter pointed out, most of those lines were you. Jimmy Mack is the best. We met Jimmy Mack back at Fire and Blood, actually, but he always posts weekly the highlights from our episodes to us. Yes. He says, oh, these are my highlights, and same with Not a Cast. And I don't watch to see when they're posted. Don't worry, Jimmy Mack. She's but. counting how many are hers, but um, <laughs> there was also, who was it? Someone pointed out last week that I haven't been fired in a while, and I would just like to point out that, in fact, I think Chloe made fireable offenses last week, not me, so. Hmm, well... Unless you can quote them to me, Eliana. The difference is Chloe and I have different, like, requirements and qualifications uh, in the job description we have for co-hosts. So, like, what whatever is a fireable offense on my part is, to me, actually a promotable offense. Not offense, a promotable asset whenever Chloe does it. I'm <laughs> like, promoted! Uh, you get a raise! the company! Yes. Somehow she passed our executive producer. Ah... Uh. We're just the talent, you know? And... All right, well, we have some other fun announcements, Eliana. Why don't you lead us in on those? Yeah, we have other fun announcements. It's not just us getting new tattoos. It's... (laughs) (laughs) So I'm excited to join up with our friends, Alicia Kingston and Monaro from Monaro Geek TV. Some of the mad queens that you might know this coming Saturday. So that'll be Saturday, June 20th. 
You can find them on YouTube. We'll have links in the description. And we can't wait to hang out with them. And, you know, we actually uh, have met them a few times at Ice and Fire Con, which, alas, has been moved to Halloween. Halloween. I can't wait for that, at least, as long as, you know, it happens and the nation isn't imploded. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm really excited. It's called their ginger ale chats, right? So we're going to lean back with a drink. I hear there might be some lipstick afoot or a lip, so to speak. And I think we're going to have a blast. Eliana's planning a meta about George R. R. Martin and his preference on body types. So Mm -hmm. make sure to tune in on that. Uh, I think we're going to just kind of kick back and just blow off some ASWAF steam with these ladies. And I'm really excited to hang out with Alicia and Minaro. So tune in for that. However, we're going to be channeling some classic... uh you know, drunk asswaf history, maybe, energy. <laughs> the good days. The good old days. The history? old alma mater. Um, <laughs> that's where I graduated from. Drunk asswaf history, kid. Hard knocks. How sober girls come in canon. She's not sober right now. <laughs> Next week. Yeah, and Alicia and Minaro are not the only excitements in our life. Next week, we are skipping out on Jamie. We have to catch up on our His Dark Materials crowd, but... The wait will be worth it, Jamie fans, because the week after that, I believe that's what, 4th of July week, uh, we'll be having the Don Willie coming on for Jamie 6 in A Feast for Crows. You probably know him from the Hype Swatch from his own channel, A Don of Ice and Fire, where he has hours of videos on his opinions of Ice and Fire. I myself was just listening to some of the Fire and Blood stuff he put out since it's been, what, we were just checked two years, 2018, is that oh my when? God. Holy crap. So... Yes, check it out. YouTube link down below, and he will be with us. Very excited to have him yeah, on. Yeah, I'm really excited, and you know, because we say that the Cersei chapters are closely tied with the Jamie chapters, we have like discussed, um, I've joined Don Willie on the Hype Swatch with a bunch of our other friends to discuss Cersei at the time that she arms the faith before, so I'm excited to join up with Don Willie again. And, I mean, he hasn't been making stuff recently, and I think he's finally making a comeback, so it's really exciting to have him re-entering the fandom. I'm very excited, and I'm sure we'll get some nice spicy takes, because next week's episode is He's got fun. spicy takes. Yes, yes. I actually remember the night of Fire and Blood, when we got the book release, we were at whatever bars over there in Jersey City, and we were I all standing him. around. I dragged yes, him you to did the- drag him I was out. like, you're coming and hanging out, you don't have a choice. I don't even remember what it was, but he and I were just like in a corner getting drunk, just debating a song about, it was probably about Sansa or some stupid shit, but (laughs) we were just getting bombed in a corner and there is a picture of me like very, you know, I'm animated, like I'm moving my hands right now at you, you know, I'm animated, Uh, but I was very animated. So I hope there's a lot of that happening again. I did about all of that and, and then finally, of course, we have our Patreon episode this month, which we... We finally landed on something. It is going to be about his dark materials. And, you know, fun times for his dark materials fans because we can finally do this project. Oh, why? Is it because you finished the book? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I mean, what so, have we got cooking, Chloe? For those of you that have not read the His Dark Materials series, we are planning on covering La Belle Sausage. I mean, La Belle Sauvage. It is one of the spinoffs of the main series of His Dark Materials. If you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. And the spinoff series are called The Books of Dust, and the first one is called La Belle Sauvage, and it's amazing. It's kind of a prequel, not really. It's like the Dunkin' Egg of His Dark Materials. So 
give it a read. We're really excited. We're going to do maybe one to two chapters to start. And we're hoping that in between finishing the book that we're working on right now, the second book in the main series, The Subtle Knife, and between season two of the show coming out, we might be able to dig in and get LaBelle Sauvage done. Yeah, I, I know that it's a little up in the air right now as to when we will get season two, because it sounds like there were some things that needed to be wrapped up on filming that they were just almost done with. But alas, here hey, we are. The world we'll is hang different out. now. Yeah, the world's different. We'll hang out. We will uh, try LaBelle Sauvage and see where we get to, you know? And The beautiful sausage. <laughs> All right, Aliana lightning round let's just jump into it everyone because jamie five is good it's deep there's a lot thanks for listening we missed you all so sometimes it's nice just to chat with you at the beginning that's all it is it is and but now we're gonna chat about brienne six brienne seeks the stark girls on the quiet isle but finds outlaws and rehabilitated broken men instead uh, cersei seven <laughs> We learn about Mir's environment, which is very thick, swampy, and moist. That really threw me off when we did the Mir episode. I like had to stop and think, I was like, does Mir even actually have swamps? Or do I only think this because You only of thought this it episode? because of time yeah. is. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Yep, yep. I mean it's a very it's a very prominent Common mistake. It's a prominent moment in this book. Um but also prominent is something that happens at the end of this chapter, Jamie 5, where Jamie continues on his what the fuck kind of man am I? Lannister tour <laughs> and stops to see Davin and Jenna on his way to River Run. Yes, and we open this chapter with such a good line. George's killer at those opening lines that are just full of prose. The trumpets made a brazen blare and cut the still blue air of dusk. Also, horny, horny episode again. Yes, we have quite a few horny episodes uh, <laughs> with Jamie, which, you know, maybe is why it corresponds with John's chapters. Pack scrambles to his feet, ready to get Jamie ready for war, but Jamie tells him outlaws don't blow trumpets when they show up. It's Davin, his cousin, the Warden of the West, chain mailed and furred and japing with Jamie. Hmm. Random thought that just made me think, does that mean like that when the others come, there's not going to be like a horn? Whatever. Anyway, uh, Jamie has a crew, including Peck. We all already know Peck. Quite a few sons and squires this chapter. Just collecting kids. The men compare beards, and we get a description of Davin's bushy beard, his mustache, and his long yellow hair. He tells Jamie he's not cutting his hair until he avenges his father, but he's actually, turns out, as he admits, been robbed of that vengeance because uh, Connor Stark was robbed. killed by Rob. He's oh, been robbed! Wow, sorry, I, I didn't even mean that one. Please hire please me. Let me keep this job. You are hired. I am fighting to stay on, and it is not significant. But it is interesting to me that it kind of sounds like Davin's appearance feels to me Northern-like, maybe even Carster-like with his beard. But I don't think that means anything. I don't know. I don't. I think you're onto something. We'll talk a little more as we dig into what he says, but it, it does feel like maybe the Northmen and these Westerland men aren't that different. You know, like maybe they wow. really aren't that different. Maybe they're just men. Wow. I don't know. A little deep, right? Like I go from a pun to being too deep. I'm so sorry. Davin continues half joking about pretty seriously traumatic stuff with Jamie, right? 
Uh, Jamie's captured by the Starks. He's like, oh, but the girls in Lannisport were mourning for you, cuz. And his hand being cut off, Davin's like, oh, I thought that Stark bitch took it. And Jamie's like, no, it was Fargo. And he thinks, where do these tales come from? And maybe it's because Jamie's finally growing up and, like, learning that Lannister propaganda that gets sent around the country might not be correct. And because this is the first time he's gotten to be a part of it in this level, right? Like he always had that Kingsguard layer before and that kind of naivete before, but also where are they coming from is really the question. We know where they're coming from. Lannister camp, because the war stories that are being passed through there harken right to some of this misinformation we've seen about Sansa, for example, or about Rob, how the Starks are winged beasts. Yeah, and what I love about this chapter and I think is interesting is there's a lot of rumors that are going around. There's a lot of mistruths being told this one most prominently, but you know, some of it is like around like, oh, what's going on with Beric Dondarrion, right? And what what they're getting from all that gossip, those hangings that are going on, and of course, there's there's it's not a rumor, but there is a lie that Jamie's going to tell Jenna about her son later. So, yes. Davin complains that Tywin should have sent him foraging instead of the brave companions, and Jamie asks him to come inside and talk. There's this line. Some tasks are fit for lions, he said, but foraging is best left for goats and dogs. Lord Tywin's very words, Jamie knew. He could almost hear <laughs> his father's voice. Uh, this whole chapter is just reeking with Tywin, and it's the worst. I sympathize for you, Jamie. Little Lou is there to attend him, and Davin correctly guesses he's a piper, and he's like, oh, you're a runt. That's how I know. And he tells him, I beat your brother bloody in a melee once. The runty little fool took offense when I asked him if that was his sister dancing naked on the shield. She's the sigil of our house. We don't have a sister. More's the pity. Your sigil has nice teats. What sort of man hides behind a naked woman, though? Every time I thumped your brother's shield, I felt unchivalrous. I kind of felt like there was some sort of, uh, some sort of Brienne Jamie foreshadowing in this. Right? Like, uh, uh, I don't know, what kind of man hides behind a naked woman? Uh, especially with Jamie and Brienne in the bathhouses and his confusion between, you know, loving Brienne and loving Cersei. And I don't know, maybe this is something about, like, hiding behind Brienne versus meeting his fate eventually. I, I, don't, know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there's that and, like, what was happening in that dream that he had. I was strangely mm -hmm. thinking of Daenerys, but not people hiding, but, like, her... Uh, sort of being in front of people, right? Mm. Titty but, out. Yeah, but uh, you know, it is it is interesting to me how Davin's really hot for this shield. Laugh. Then we also get next uh, laughing. Jamie like comes to lose defense, right? He's like, "That's so funny that my cousin's horny about a shield," and <laughs> asks Davin, "What? Um, what is he gonna find? You know, what will he meet at the siege of Riverrun while Pia is there mulling wine for them?" She's come along on all this. Davin says that the siege is dragging on. The Blackfish is inside the castle. It's all boring. He wishes there would be a battle to get rid of some Riverlanders and some Freys. Uh, interesting. He's like, I'm bored. Let's just have people kill each other. Very Lannister. He's like, but especially he's like, like Ryman or Lord Edmund of Riverrun, who is being very obnoxious at dictating how they take his castle during the siege. I mean, I get it. They're pretty annoying. Like, yes, I want to be mad at him for being all, war's good and kill people, have fun. Like, war fun, have fun. 
do crimes, be straight, Davin Lannister. Um, but also I do like that he's like, oh, I'd love to kill Ryman or Emin. Fuck those guys. Like, you know, maybe yeah. some Lannisters do deserve a couple rights. Maybe some. Yeah. It's a nuanced take. He's like, nuanced. yeah, nuance. Kill Ryman and Emin. <laughs> nuance. Peck serves their wine on a golden platter and Davin asks, who's this guy? Who's Peck? Peck introduces himself and Jamie's like, yeah, Peck was a hero on the Blackwater. Davin mocks his beard and says, Stannis' wife has a thicker mustache. Fuck off. Asking how old he is. Fifteen, sir. Sir Davin snorted. You know the best thing about heroes, Jamie? They all die young and leave more women for the rest of us. He tossed the cup back to the squire. Fill that full again and I'll call you a hero, too. I have a thirst. So when I hear this, I kind of worry and I think it's a kind of a justified worry after what happens in season eight. But like... That this line is about Jamie, and it probably is. And I mean, I don't know how young he's considered in like Westerosi years. For me, I'm like, yeah, Jamie's Jamie's. I had I I don't know if I'd call him a young man anymore, but he's a he's a man. He's not like old. He, this could be considered dying young. But Davin was just saying like how all the girls are crying about Jamie Lannister, right? And it is interesting. So so I do kind of wonder if this line is about Jamie leaving the women for the rest of them but it, it's also interesting to me like how often this jamie's desirability gets brought up because jamie doesn't really care about it compared to like how often like cersei thinks about it in her chapters and and that speaks of course to how gender functions in mm-hmm. westeros it also speaks to his self-worth right like jamie doesn't see himself yeah. as the hero he doesn't see himself as a golden beautiful hero yes he quite obviously should know better because he's been very privileged not just with the name of lannister but like to be an attractive westerosi with his golden hair and his king's guard status that's something that a lot of small folk would probably murder to have right but i would say as far as young i mean he's in his mid-30s right mid-30s something like that something like that early to mid yeah and we discussed Arwen Frey, who only comes up the one time, but he he's, was said to be young, right? Like, Jamie literally calls him young Arwen Frey, and he's about 30-something years old. So to me, I think it works. I think Jamie's definitely younger, and I definitely think it's foreshadowing. Absolutely. I mean, they all die young and leave more women for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, Jamie didn't doesn't need to die. He's already leaving all the women for the rest of you. He's out there being like, Peck. <laughs> That girl. That you should bang her. Some. Yeah, she wants some. Jamie, actually a successful matchmaker, honestly. Uh, and like Cersei. Jamie reminds uh, Davin that he was speaking about dead phrase, though. And Davin adds Walter Rivers to the list. Uh, Walter Rivers hates being a bastard, but he also hates everyone who's not a bastard. And I, I'm going to be honest, after doing what was the series I used to do back then, of like, thank God it's. Friday. It was hilarious. Yes. Walter Rivers is fascinating. He's a very fascinating character, also called Bastard Walter, and I'd love to talk about him more sometime, and he's a character that I really hope we get more of in The Winds of Winter. Yeah, and if you're ever looking for Frey content, there are two Frey people we ever recommend. Fat Walda, of course, has good opinions, especially in the Frey Day threads, because I used to read a lot of those. 
over on Reddit on uh, our A Song of Ice and Fire, our Aswaf, and our really good friend Pat Dougherty also yes. has written a bit about the phrase. I'll have to find a link and pop it in the description because he is like, if I have questions about the phrase, I just hit him a message and go, Pat, can you explain this to me? And I'm sure as we get through the next chapters, I will be messaging him. Yes, definitely. He's also got uh, Blackfire content, so yes, check Pat out. So Davin adds, hey, Sir Perwin seems all right, and the woman too, I'll spare them. Then he talks about how he's supposed to marry a fray girl, which is thanks to Tywin's deals. And earlier you were talking about how he almost seems like a Northman, right? Davin Lannister almost yeah. has this Northman look to him. And this is kind of the same as the Starks, right? Catelyn and Rob liked Perwin and the girls. Davin mm-hmm. is promised to a fray against his will, like Edmure. I mean, yeah. they're just men. Definitely. and But they've they've learned from other people's mistakes, I guess, and for sure. But also, like, Perwin and his brothers, though, they are legit. I will vouch yeah. for them personally. <laughs> I will. Uh, so Perwin is one of the children between Walder and Bethany Rosby, right? So Bethany yeah. Rosby kind of seems to not be awful right i mean she the rosbys in general seem to have a decent kind of for the most part before now when there's no one in rosby to have the inheritance but bethany rosby seemed like a decent character like well decently fleshed out for a pre-asog of ice and fire character and i know that people talk about like oliver and them in the context of there's there's the rosby heir and inheritance thing that Mm -hmm. i guess people like to theorize about so they're all candidates and in that discussion, so if you want to mm. look into that, I'm not going to explain it. I forgot it. I actually tried to explain it once, and then I forgot it entirely. I might have just explained too it many. on this podcast. I think it was, <laughs> and there's just too many. There's just yeah. too many frays and too many inheritances. We're going to talk about some inheritance later with River Run, and as I sat there with such a simple amount of people to speak about, I was like, nope, too much. <laughs> just have one kid. Just yeah. be an only child like me. I don't yeah, I don't know. Brilliant. We did it. So back before Oxcross, Davin's dad was treating with the red wines, and Davin was to marry a heavily dowered, freckled daughter, Desmera. And I think this in kind of juxtaposed against Cersei Five, when you think about it, is really interesting because she's bitching about the red wines and how they should have the big fleet and they should be able to defend the sea while they're busy with uh, the siege, of course. So I thought this was kind of really interesting parallel to think about with Cersei V and Jamie V. The conversation turns to some of the other phrase, like Lancel's wife, and Davin is really grateful he missed out on that one. Jamie explains, Lancel didn't pick, Kevin picked, to win the dairy small folk to their side. Davin says, how, by fucking them? You know why they call her Gatehouse Amy, right? She raises her porticolas for every knight who happens by. Davin, we don't slut shame. We're sex positive here. We don't sex shame. We shame Gatehouse Amy for many other reasons, as we found out last episode. Turns out, <laughs> as you said last episode, being sex positive isn't enough to make us like a character. <laughs> I still hate you, Gatehouse I mean, Amy. That really, but... that really blew up in our faces. Yeah, that really blew up yeah. in our faces last mm-hmm. episode. Jamie says, it makes no matter. Same, Jamie. Same. Lancelot abandoned his marriage. To go join the High Septon Swords to Devon's astonishment. Then we have this quote. When Jamie had taken his leave of Lady Amory, 
She had been weeping softly at the dissolution of her marriage, whilst letting Lyle Craighall console her. Her tears had not troubled him half so much as the hard looks on the faces of her kin as they stood about the yard. I hope you do not intend to take vows as well, cuz, he said to Davin. The phrase are prickly where marriage contracts are concerned. I would hate to disappoint them again. Yup, know, Devin says, uh, basically, he's like, he'll wet in bed the stoat, never fear, whatever. He's like, shields make me horny. How much harder can it be when there's, like, a real woman, right? But <laughs> he also says that he should pick a virgin. Uh, according to Edwin, Blackwalder has likely been all over the other girls and Amy more than thrice, and interesting, interesting. I, uh, I'm here, though, to stand up for stoats, a.k.a. ermines. Uh, I am a stoat stan because of his dark materials and Lyra, where the demon Pantalimon takes the form of, a, of an ermine very often. So, Yes, and uh, you're not a stoat stan because of the Frey girls. That's what I'm hearing. I'm afraid not. <laughs> well, you should probably get some new laces. So they discussed Kevin's chilly courtesy as he rode through the camps. Davin had told Kevin he hadn't wanted the Warden of the West job, and Kevin said he had no grudge. Though his responses, his actions, his tones kind of said otherwise. Kevin left after three days of barely any communication. Our friends of Frey would not have dared vex Sir Kevin the way they've been vexing me, says Davin. This line reminds me of how Cersei speaks about Tywin uh, throughout all of Feast, honestly, but specifically in Cersei 5. She was tired of Jaime balking her. No one had ever balked her lord father. When Tywin Lannister spoke, men obeyed. When Cersei spoke, they felt free to counsel her, to contradict her, even refuse her. And we do get an exact use of Vex in this chapter from Cersei about Jamie, actually. She could not even trust her own blood and kin, nor Jamie, who had once been her other half. He was meant to be my sword and shield, my strong right arm. Why does he insist on vexing me? Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I do you think she's a little wrong, right? You've seen Jamie Bach at Tywin. Mm-hmm. That was like a big part of the books and his story. But at the same time, like, I, I think that likening... Cersei and Davin here is, is uh makes a lot of sense, especially because we see Cersei wrestling with that a lot in the chapter right before this. And I mean, at least Davin though knows he's like I deserve this. <laughs> he's like, I deserve to be boxed. I didn't I truly don't want to deal with this. Yeah, he really didn't want this. He didn't ask for this cup to pass to him at all. He really didn't. Like, I think part of it is him being like, Jamie, can you just deal with this for me? That's half this chapter. Well, it is because Cersei literally gave it to him to fuck over Kevin. It was totally like it's a true. fuck you move. It was a flip you off move. It's kind of like a I'm sorry, I didn't want this gift that I was given kind of thing. Yeah. And, and it's kind of funny when you think about, like, something that I thought of as we were reading this chapter and all that stuff about the warden, remember, it was such a big deal in the first book when that Stark was all like, wait, so you mean Tywin Lannister's warden of the West and you're about to fucking make Jaime Lannister warden of the East too? Mm-hmm. And so it's it, it, a lot of crazy shit happening in Westeros right now. Absolutely. 
Davin tells Jamie of Ryman Frey's Mummer's show that keeps happening every day. They bring Edmir Tully out, throw a noose on him, threaten to kill him unless the blackfish yields, and then the blackfish doesn't yield. Edmir gets taken down, and it happens the very next day. Edmir's wife, Rosalyn, is with child from the Red Wedding. Talk about a strong seed. She prays for a girl, and Jamie gets why. If a son's born, Lord Walder doesn't need Edmir at all. And Emin, their uncle-in-law, wants Edmir dead too, so he can have his fancy castle. So there's definitely something going on here with the imagery of Ryman Frey's, I guess, inability to hang Edmir against the backdrop of like, I don't know, there's corpses hanging from the trees all over the fucking place. Because a different Tully is going around hanging Frey's. Good for her. Good for her. Good for her. <laughs> no, that's actually a really great call. I didn't even think about that. You just like, can't go through with it. But of course, Davin tells us about Gawain Westerling, whose wife and children are in Riverrun as hostages, and he won't stop yelling at him to not hang Edmure in case, you know, the Tullys decide to retaliate. Jamie can't remember what Jane Westerling looks like, but thinks she must have been pretty good looking if Rob threw the North away for her. And I, I do think it's funny that the way that Jamie thinks about how Jane must have been really beautiful to be worth losing a kingdom over. And I can't help but think that that's the story that's evolved about Lyanna Stark <laughs> and Rhaegar and how that uh, all went down. And because we're going to see it later on, right? Jamie's going to be like, I don't know. Jane's okay, I guess. And we know that it wasn't Jane's looks, right? That Rob married her for as opposed to honor. But it is interesting of Jamie to judge, considering that, you know, Jamie, Mr. Throw My Whole Life Away for a beautiful woman who happens to also be my sister. Yeah, this chapter is absolutely spent with Jamie once more projecting into every single situation he comes into because he's dealing with some heavy shit, right? Yeah. And I think the bigger heavy thing poops. about Jane is, like, it's not even that he's like, I don't know, she's okay. It's like, she's a girl. She's just a girl. Yeah. When he sees her, she's yeah, just a girl who's true. ripped her dress and you know, pissed about her crown being taken away and she's crying and wailing about it and she's just a girl. That's Cersei in Cersei 5 when yeah. she's remembering Rhaegar and her betrothal being taken away from her. That's young Cersei when her betrothal's taken away from her. Um, obviously, Jane's is a little more realistic because hers was murdered, right? Her husband was murdered, but... And she was also, like, used by the entire family as a honeypot and, you know, we'll get there. Absolutely. It's even Cersei now in some ways. Yeah. Jamie assures Davin that the Blackfish will not kill the children and asks what the current situation is ahead at the castle. The wall is encircled by the phrase Forley Prester and the River Lords who came over to the Lannisters after the Red Wedding. <laughs> Quote unquote. He thinks of them as a sullen lot. Davin's camp is between the rivers, and he says they've set a boom up across the Red Fork, defended by Manfred Yu and Reynard Rudiger. They fish for the camps as well. Some of these names are fun. Riverrun has provisions for two years, and the Lannister camp does not. Uh, they are keeping up for now, but eventually they know, you know, the horses will go hungry. They're like, I guess we can just keep fishing for us, though. But the phrase haul food and fodder from the twins... But then they claim they don't have enough to share, so the river has been full of every man foraging for themselves. 
Wow, and those men that are foraging for themselves, do you think they're going to get in any fights across other men as they forage? And, like, slowly, are they just going to, like, break apart across themselves? I could see that happening. Yeah, they're going to fray. Oh, my God. So, many of the foraging parties have been deserting, like I just said, and many others are found hanging from trees, as Jamie had come across the day before last. The corpses had been stripped naked, and each man a crab apple shoved between his teeth. None bore any wounds. Plainly, they had yielded. Davin thinks it may be outlaws or maybe random bands of Northmen. And these lords of the Trident may have bent their knees, but methinks their hearts are still wolfish. Jamie glanced at his two younger squires who were hovering near the braziers, pretending not to listen. Lewis Piper and Garrett Page were both the sons of river lords. He'd grown fond of both of them and would hate to have to give them to Sir Illyn. That reminds me a lot of Daenerys and Jon simultaneously in A Dance with Dragons dealing with their own little hostage kind of situations. Yeah, that's a great parallel. And I even like, I guess Theon was kind of in that mm-hmm. situation too. He's one of those. I, I just think it's interesting that Jamie has magically sprouted two squires <laughs> on top of his current one. Like, how many is too many? Like, can you really teach all these children, Jamie? I think, it's like, by the end of the books, he's just going to have a big adoption list of kids that he's going to make Tommen sign, because Tommen's going to live forever. They, yeah. They chat on the nooses, which suggests, uh, Beric. Beric to them. But Davin laughs it off. Many men know how to tie nooses. Yeah, I mean, it's common knot. You need it for fishing. But he does think that he's been around. He thinks that the river lords are helping conceal the marcher lord. One day you hear the man is dead, the next you're saying how he can't be killed. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because they're all like, I don't think it's Beric, but I think it is. It's kind of like the boogeyman or like a weird, like, what's an urban legend, you know, like a chain forward that you forget to send and then you see someone in the mirror. Uh, it, it's like they just want to put their worries into Beric Dondarrion being the one doing it. But like we, the reader, know it's not him, homie. It's way scarier, to be honest, but it actually yeah. is. Like, no, he died bringing what it was to life. <sighs> yeah, it's it's a way it's way more terrifying, especially if you're a fray. And night there are signal fires, which is part of it, and a ring of watchers and fires in the village. This made me think of the free folk attacking at the wall. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm, about yeah. all the ring fires and everything. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of similar imagery. <laughs> But the fires are really prominent. Davin says they worship a new god, but Jamie thinks, no, it's an old one. <laughs> Ooh, spoopy. I see, I see you, George, with your Lovecraft shit. <laughs> right? Thoros of Mir is with them, and Jamie touches his golden hand on the table, saying they'll deal with him if they must, but Brynden the Blackfish must come first. I, too, think we should eradicate Brynden be fish first, but... Listen, Jamie, we have other things <laughs> to do. Sir Ryman Frey had tried to treat with them, half drunk, making threats, but the blackfish shows up, says fuck off, and puts an arrow in the horse's ass. Jamie gives a half smile. He's like, ah, I plan to wear a garget when I go, and I mean to offer generous terms. He thinks this, of course, because of his vow to Catalan. He plans to get it all over with and get back to Cersei, where he's quote-unquote needed. Davin brightly asks, why did Cersei send Kevin away? 
He should have been hand, or you, cuz. Jamie's like, well, you know. I mean, uh, we all know why it happened. We were all there. I do find it interesting that Davin says this. Like, he, he says that line, right? Like, I hope... He- I hope he knows I never asked for this regarding Kevin. And that's something that comes up in the story a lot, right? From, like, Ned thinking about Brandon. And most especially, most prominently, I think, in Stannis being like, I never asked for this. Uh, Also in John's a little. But John's quite a bit. But, you know, at the very least, I find that Davin really embodies a person that I think means it when they say I never asked for this in a way you know he's just really like I really didn't I really do not want to be here he really oozes that and it's like Jamie can you do this for me and he keeps saying this like as though he's like maybe maybe I can get out of it yeah he's like maybe if I say this enough times Jamie can pull some strings then Kevin can be hand and I can just go back to tracking off the shields uh, I'm not going to get over Not that. even that. His freckled waifu. Like, all he wanted yeah. was to get this beautiful, red-headed, freckled bitch, house red wine girl, Desmira, you know, and just, like, go to the arbor with her and vacation and eat grapes with her and live a normal life. Great. He didn't. Yeah, he didn't want... It doesn't even matter if that girl was covered in freckles like Jamie was making fun of her. Like, he didn't that care. That sounds hot. That sounds awesome. A freckled girl in the sun kissing her, eating grapes. I'd do it. It'd be better than war. Yeah. And he's like not even doing like the part of war that he likes, apparently. He's like, I'm just sitting here and everyone sucks. He's like, I hate all these people. (laughs) So. Yeah. Davin asks if Cersei is as beautiful as ever. And Jamie's like, radiant and golden. But in his head, he thinks, fickle. False as fool's gold. Huh. Pretty funny. Um, Come a long way, Jamie. Come a long way. Yeah. Jamie. I'm in the breakup. (laughs) He remembers his dream from the night before where he dreamt that he found her fucking moon boy and he had smashed her teeth in like the mountain did to Pia after killing moon boy. And he has two hands in this dream now. One normal, one gold, but they both operate normally. This is a big... Okay, Jamie. Interesting. (laughs) This is not not the best Jamie. So, interestingly enough, this is almost exactly what Lancel dreamed about right in the last chapter. He dreamed Jamie killed him for fucking Cersei. I dreamed that you would come. In the dream, you knew what I had done. How I'd sinned. You killed me for it. So I think that's interesting that last chapter he hears that from Lancel, and then this chapter he actually dreams it with Moonboy instead. And I've noticed that of the dreams that we get for killing in A Song of Ice and Fire, where someone kills someone in their dreams, and I'm not counting wolf dreams, fuck the Starks, we're not talking about them right now. Um, We could talk about Theon Five and Clash of Kings, for example, because that's kind of the first dream that we see. Last night in his dream, he had been in bed with her once again, but this time she had teeth above and teeth below, and she tore out his throat even as she even as she was gnawing off his manhood. It was madness. He'd seen her die, too. Uh, a closer look at a lot of these killing dream mentions, though, are bringing something up in common. The most of the dreams where someone kills someone in their dreams that are not wolf dreams show up in Brienne 5, Jamie 5, and Tyrion 2 in A Dance with Dragons. In Brienne 5, we get Brienne killing the brave companions in her dream, 
They danced around her, mocking her, pinching at her as she slashed at them with her sword. She cut them all to bloody ribbons, yet they still swarmed around her. And then she begins to get the visions of people like Ronit in her dream. And she thinks, Ronit had a rose between his fingers. When he held it out to her, she cut his hand off. Hmm. So it's almost like she chopped that hand off and sent it right on down the river to Jamie in time for his dream, which of course, when she chops it off in that dream, it's kind of happening alongside the same time when Jamie sends Red Rotted away. Interesting. Sort of weird cosmic dream energy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we know Jamie's affinity for falling asleep on weirwood stumps. So, dream, dream. Tyrion, too, in a dance with dragons, not a dream with dragons. That night, Tyrion Lannister dreamed a battle that turned the hills of Westeros as red as blood. He was in the midst of it, dealing death with an axe as big as he was, fighting side by side with Barristan the Bold and Bittersteel as dragons wheeled across the sky above them. In the dream, he had two heads, both noseless. His father led the enemy, so he slew him once again. Then he killed his brother, Jaime, hacking at his face until it was a red ruin, laughing every time he struck a blow. Only when the fight was finished did he realize his second head was weeping. Yes. And that's a significant dream for this chapter, in many mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, this stood out to me, too. First of all, I want to come back to the thing about Lancel. You know, it's so funny how he'd sinned. Lancel, you didn't sin if you don't come inside. It's not treason. Um, But it stood out to me that, like, again, regarding Jamie's hands, like, earlier in Jamie's storyline, right after his hand is cut, he says that he still dreams of himself with those two hands, and as we all know, Jamie with two hands, like, didn't give a fuck about anyone or anything. He's just like, whatever, I'm gonna just throw kids out of windows for their health. And now we see him striving to be better, though it's a bit iffy here and there as he decides, like, what course am I gonna take to secure River Run? And we've very consciously, right, seeing Jamie trying to improve, and then right now he's kind of, every now and then, remembering his vows to Catelyn. So here he, in this dream, has two hands. One is gold and still functions like a normal hand, though. It just happens to be gold. And by the last chapter of this book, though, where Joanna Lannister is all like, this isn't a dream, Jamie. He only has one hand, and the dream is, like, sad and, like, spooky and shit. But I do wonder if, like, later on when Jamie dreams, like, actually a dream, not, like, a weird wood dream that's saying it's not a dream, but, you know, actually a dream. So the idealized form of himself and how he sees himself, where he envisions what it means to be powerful, right? Like, are we going to see him transform into dreaming of himself with two hands, but maybe one of those hands is the gold one, but functions as his current, like, shitty fake gold hand does and you know basically pretty fucking useless and then maybe finally like dream of himself with only one hand realizing that the hand that gave him a lot of that societal power through masculinity martial power as he thinks of the hand that i killed Ares with the hand that i fucked cersei with right but it, it brought him so many other problems maybe will he start dreaming of himself without that hand as he accepts who he is and goes on a different path i hope so i think that's an idea definitely to come because he is self-actualizing. We, I'm really excited for our guest for the last episode of the book, and we cannot talk about it yet, but that was a little teaser to those listening. Uh, but I'm sure we're going to have some talks about this with dreams in that episode. And 
I really hope moving forward, he self-actualizes himself as this is who you actually are. And he accepts it because this whole journey in the Riverlands really feels like he's just trying to figure out who the fuck he is. Yeah, which same. Yeah, we all are, man. We all are. We're on that road. (laughs) At least not all of us throw kids out of windows. You know, there's that. Yeah, we're all just floating down the Red Fork, man, looking for ourselves. So Jamie leaves Davin after another hour of bullshitting, and he dons his brown Cersei cloak cosplay, his traveling cloak. He walks the river, and he thinks, you know, I actually kind of like this life. He feels more comfortable in the field amongst soldiers and young knights than he does at court. He watches washerwomen playing chicken mounted on men-at-arms in the river. One is Raph the Sweetling. And he bets a copper star on the match on the blonde one, laughing with them. Yeah, it's interesting to me he bets on the blonde one, which it reminds me a little of when Tyrion was like, I always bet on my brother Jamie. That's cute. I was thinking of it with him in regards to Cersei of betting on the blonde girl, but I like the Tyrion Jamie mm. thing a lot too. I do. He makes his way across the river and finds Illyn Payne shining his greatsword, and they go off to their dance. We get the line. Underneath his steel and wool and boiled leather, Jamie Lannister was a tapestry of cuts and scabs and bruises. I just thought that was beautiful. A tapestry. Again, yeah. another tapestry remark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Seems significant. A sentry comments at them as they leave, and Jamie tells him to stay vigilant, because there are wolves about. They ride toward the burnt village they had passed on the way in. He and Ilan Payne dance in the blackened stones and cinder. At first, Jamie's like, all right, these lessons have been paying off. And, you know, this time, Ellen Payne is the one who's going to be sore and bruised tonight. But, nope. By the end, Jamie's on his knees in the mud. Ellen Payne's sword is at his throat. He thinks he should have challenged Raft Sweetling to water jousting <laughs> instead. The last day of the journey is cold and gusty. It reminds me a little bit of the Storm of Swords weather out in the Riverlands as they got to the phrase, actually. Even in his Kingsguard winter wolves... He rides alongside Davin, and in the late afternoon, they finally see River Run. It looks like a great stone ship. The walls are drenched in red-gold light. They are higher and thicker than Jamie remembers. He worries he'll have to break his vow to Catalan if the Blackfish doesn't break, while he listens to the booms of the besieging armies. And I do love this one line of, If the Blackfish would not listen, he would have no choice but to break the vow he'd made to Catelyn Stark. The vow he'd sworn his king came first. And I, I think it's significant that that's happening, right? It's here at River Run, and Jamie's returning to the place where he was held prisoner, and it's also with this line that we start to see Jamie truly tested as to how much he has changed, especially because it ties in with that other iconic line that he spoke here at River Run when he was in the dungeons to a different Tully. So many vows, they make you swear and swear. So now we have Jamie thinking that his vows to family or his king precede those that he made to a woman for his freedom, a woman who's begging for the freedom of her daughters and perhaps even protecting, in a way, the vows that Brienne made in her honor, especially in the context of him suddenly thinking, like, the vows worn to his king came first when we know that like Jamie's Jamie's big sin as we all know right it's it's that he broke a similar vow to his king and everyone brings it up to Jamie all the fucking time he's <laughs> like thanks everyone didn't want to talk about that it, it's like a big uh 
it's like it won't leave him alone. Like, Jamie's trying to go rectify his entire situation, trampling through the Riverlands, trying to do good. And yet at every turn, someone's like, hey, Kingslayer. Hey, Kingslayer. It's hard. How could you change with that kind of pressure on you? How could you? Look at Tyrion. Yeah, true. True, true. Tyrion lashes out. Tyrion says, I'll be the monster you all believe me to be. And it's hard. How do you go through this and somehow at the end of this book still come out thinking, I gotta change. I gotta keep going. Yeah. That is something that a person who felt nuanced about Jamie Lannister would say. Moving on. Sir Ryman's camp is the largest, as described, with a great gray gallows above the tents, as tall as any trebuchet. It turns out Ryman's basically got a mini court set up, complete with White Smile Watt the singer from Lannisport to attend Aunt Jenna. Jamie thinks better to have his head off and be done with it. We get a line from Davin here. Couldn't we just dam the river and drown the whole lot of them, cuz? I thought it was kind of funny, and I know it's not intentional on George's part, because um, I don't think we get the actual how of uh, the way that House Rain and the Tarbex were killed until the World of Ice and Fire, which would have come out, like, what, ten years after this book came out? I'm so tired, Chloe. Um, <laughs> But it- it's interesting, nonetheless. Yeah, I guess we don't technically get the actual details till the World of Ice and Fire. That's interesting. The banners of House Tully stream above River Run, but the highest tower is flying something else. The Stark Banner. <laughs> Good for them. Jamie tells Davin about the first time he saw River Run when delivering a message for Sumner Craycall. Hoster Tully had feasted him while working on his response and sat Jamie next to Liza at every meal. Small wonder you took the white. I'd have done the same. Oh. Liza was not so fearsome as all that. She'd been a pretty girl in truth, dimpled and delicate with long auburn hair. Timid, though, prone to tongue-tied silences and fits of giggles, with none of Cersei's fire. Her older sister had seemed more interesting, though Catelyn was promised to some northern boy, the heir of Winterfell. But at that age, no girl interested Jamie half so much as Hoster's famous brotherhood won renown fighting the Nine Penny Kings upon the Sepstones. I love this so much because I just imagine young Jamie just like... Yeah, tell me more, Mr. Blackfish. And, like, Liza's all tugging on his sleeve, like, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. And he's like, shh, your uncle's talking. Definitely. That's absolutely what he was like. Um, And you kind of wonder, you know, what, what would it have been like if it had been a little different? But I wonder if Catelyn was also like, yeah, uncle, tell me more. Very, very cool girl vibes, Catelyn, I guess. Um, Which, you know... Forms a basis. Like, the Jamie Catelyn hate sex vibes go way back. Uh, funny, though, that Jamie hardly does think about his imprisonment in Riverrun. I, I feel like it's not really brought up at all during this chapter, the entire time that he's here. And that this is kind of all he thinks about Catelyn explicitly, besides that one other mention of the vow that he made. Because I feel like you know, Catelyn's ghost or or zombie, different undead thing, um, has been looming over this whole chapter, from the hangings to like the references about the red wedding and the phrase, right? And yet, yeah, this is one of the very few mentions that Jamie thinks of Cat, other than again that vow or when people ask like who took his hand, and she's gonna come up more in conversation in the next chapter. But it kind of feels like Jamie's trying to push that out of his mind explicitly as he wrestles with what to do here. 
but the chapter keeps also trying to remind us and it, it's like in the subconscious of Jamie, right? Catelyn Stark, Lady Stoneheart, she's here. This place is important to all that. I almost feel that he's completely avoiding the topic because he doesn't condemn it anymore either. He's trying to honor those vows that he made, whether they were obviously in shitty position or not. And it kind of seems, especially in the beginning when it's brought up that, you know, oh, did Catelyn Stark cut your hand off? Cause like, it almost feels like he's like, what? No. Why? Why would you think that nice lady would do that? That I want to fuck. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like, okay, not that. I'm being silly, obviously. If you haven't noticed yeah. when I'm being facetious, come on, y'all. But am I? Uh, but I mean, are you? I mean, I'm not. But really, like, it does feel like Jamie's not demonizing the Starks for holding him hostage. It feels like he's looking at hmm. things a lot more objectively. He's thinking, hey, I obviously would have and our family has done the same thing to them. Yeah, I, I I feel like it's a combination of that and him not wanting to think about it because he doesn't want mm-hmm. to break it, as you're saying, right? Yeah, he doesn't want to confront it either in the complexity that surrounds it. Though I yeah. do really love the view on Liza here. Yeah. I mean, I know I have my controversial take that Brienne's really not ugly. It's just like men are idiots. Like, Agreed. There's beauty in everyone, you know what I mean? Like people are just idiots in Westeros, like... I really don't think Brienne's that ugly. There's no way. She's just awkward. Different. I agree. There's all that. And also, like, I mean, apparently Jamie thinks that freckles are a turnoff. Like, Jamie's tastes are questionable. I'm gonna throw it out there. They're niche. They're very, uh... (laughs) They're very... I wouldn't say it's a refined palette. I'd just say it's, like, a palette. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah. Very picky. Very... The pickiest of palettes that one can have. I appreciate that he, like, defends Liza, though, because, again, yeah. it's it's that whole thought process of, oh, Catelyn, cut your hand off? It's just what they think. It's the rumor mill. And they think Liza's a crazy ass, right? Like, there's, like, Liza Aaron's crazy bones McGee and blah, 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 and she's just nutso. And Jamie's like, no, and Catelyn thinks it, too. I mean, the biggest shock in a Game of Thrones for Catelyn is that this isn't Liza. This isn't the girl I was married next to. We get... A couple different lines. Uh, the Liza who came back from King's Landing is not the same girl who went south when her husband was named Hand. Those years were hard for her. You must know Lord Aaron was a dutiful husband, but their marriage was made from politics, not passion. And then later when she meets Liza once more, as Catelyn held her, she remembered the slender, high-breasted girl who'd waited beside her that day in the sept at River Run. how lovely and full of hope she had been. All that remained of her sister's beauty was the great fall of thick auburn hair that cascaded to her waist. This is a recent fall. This is like the last few years this all happened. Liza was normal. Like, she was a young woman trying to live her life who was forced into this arranged marriage for swords to go to this war. Jamie doesn't judge her in that way. Jamie thinks she was fine. Little, you know, chatty or nervous or whatever, but she's fine. Yeah, and someone needs to fucking stand up for Liza in this story, to be Me. honest. And yeah, <laughs> it, it's all that. And like you said, in these quotes, right? It it had taken a toll on her. Not only was she forced into this loveless marriage, she was also forced to have an abortion that she wasn't told about, mm-hmm. and then manipulated by a guy for years. He does eventually end up killing her. But I mean, 
you know, we don't see Liza's interiority, and like while it doesn't show externally on Circe, like through her chapters, we see the toll that being in a loveless marriage has taken on her. Mm-hmm. Like how how could it not change Liza? Like. Like, she didn't even yeah. get the money. Her dad got the money. Do you get that? Like, it's not like she was banging him for money. It's like she was banging him so her dad could have money. Do you guys not get that? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's worse. Yeah. Creepy old She's- men, if you get the money, sure. Okay? <laughs> if you get the she bag, doing her duty. girl. If you yeah. get the bag. I digress. And she did her duty, right? Yeah. Like, and it, as we can see, like that wasn't fun. And we get again that exploration through through Cersei, through Daenerys. I mean, it's absolutely traumatic through Daenerys' earlier chapters. I so, mean, is anyone else traumatized by everything in these books, or is it just us? <sighs> yeah. So, I mean, I get it. At least he's like, no, Liza was all right back then. Yeah. But he did ignore Liza because yeah. he was like, "Whatever, I don't actually care about girls right now <laughs> that aren't related to me." And as the Brendan Blackfish for more tales about Maylie's the monstrous and the Even Prince, then Jamie reflects on this for a moment as they head to Davin's camp. First, pressing through Emmons' camp, first passing through the camps of river lords whose knees were forced to bend to Joffrey. There's Leicester, Vance, Root, Goodbrook, Smallford, and Piper. They're all camped. But the banners that he doesn't see sieging Riverrun feel more important. Where are Malister, Bracken, Ryger, Page? They're all missing, and they've allegedly bent the knee. Small note. Yeah, so Smallford is not a house. Uh, George describes it as the acorns of Smallford. So my book mm. says Smallford. I don't know if your version does. I don't know if it's been corrected. But I'm pretty sure that was supposed to be Smallwood. Oh. It's always fun when you see like those typos or like errors or a couple of them every now and then. Yeah. Jamie knows they have to end the siege as soon as possible. Or the others, who have no true loyalty to the throne, will get bolder. They reach the ford, and Kenos of Case blows the Horn of Herrick, which should at least bring Blackfish out to the battlements to see what's going on. They splash through the muddy waters, carrying Tommen's standard and the Kingsguard's standard amidst the new siege towers that are being hammered together. Peck asks where Jamie wants his tent set up. Jamie points, commands Adam to inspect the perimeter, and Davin asks if he should summon the stoats. Eliana's favorites for a council, but Jamie wants to speak to the Blackfish one-on-one first. He sends John Batley to shake the peace banner out and let Brynden know he wishes to meet with him at first light on the drawbridge. Peck, of course, is like, you're gonna get shot out there, man, and Jamie's like, nah, gangsters don't die, Peck. And Pia and Peck then help to start Jamie's fire. He often falls asleep to the sound of them fucking in the corner of the tent. Nice. Cute. And (laughs) cute. Finally, who strides into the tent just as he's getting out of his greaves, but Jenna Lannister, Frey, his aunt. She embraces him in a big hug, and we get a great description of Jenna. She held out her arms and left him no choice but to embrace her. Jenna Lannister had been a shapely woman in her youth, always threatening to overflow her bodice. Now the only shape she had was square. Her face was broad and smooth, her neck a thick pink pillar. Her bosom, enormous, 
She carried enough flesh to make two of her husband. Jamie hugged her dutifully and waited for her to pinch his ear. She had been pinching his ear for as long as he could remember, but today she forbore. Instead, she planted soft and sloppy kisses on his cheeks. Oh, like a pupper. No, that's very sweet, though, because she's always yeah. pinched his ear, and today's the day where she realizes, not the not the time and place. And I think a lot of people, especially in this story, but also in real life, could do with learning the time and place for things, you know? She offers uh, him condolences for his loss, which Jamie thinks means his hand immediately, and she's like, um, no, my brother, your father, who died. And she asks, oh, did they make you a golden father to replace Tywin, too? <laughs> Probably me nicer yeah probably um, wouldn't talk if i recall correctly this feels like a parallel to joffrey when Tyrion returns to king's landing and expresses his condolences to him he's like i'm sorry for your loss and joffrey's like what loss and he's like oh you know your father he was like big he had a beard he was king before you you might remember him if you try joffrey's like oh yeah right um and i do think that you know, Tywin is, I do think that Tywin is Jamie's biological father, and it does go to show, same as how, you know, Balin and Theon, right, they were distant, and Balin doesn't quite feel, I guess, like Theon's a son, whatever, but it, it, same as how Joffrey was chasing Robert's approval, he feels too distant to remember that, oh yeah, that's right, I'm grieving, I suffered a loss, and Jamie, he's like, more shaken, it seems, by the betrayal of Tyrion, for longer than he is by the loss of his father, who was constantly disappointed by him, and whose legacy and approval, I mean, all of them were chasing, and whose shadow they were all living under, as explored in, like, literally the rest of this chapter. So we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. We do get, now, a great look. I say great. It's not great. A look at Emin, Frey. Who is nervous, he's anxious, he's skinny, no chin, huge Adam's apple. He's 60 and bald with some white wisps of hair left on top. And of course, his line here is, A man such as Tywin comes but once a in a thousand years, Jamie. Uh, this is the comfort he's providing his good nephew. Jenna is looking for the truth of the rumors of her brother's death. And Jamie goes, Ah, serving people, you should go. So Jenna asks, did Tyrion really kill him? Or is this just a story Cersei's putting out? Which I also love that she's like, can you differentiate? Because no one fucking knows. Jamie tells her, nope, it is true, and fumbles to get his golden hand off. Yeah, so, oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting, I didn't catch that symbolism of, like, here he is, he's going to be real and honest now with his Aunt Jenna. But, yeah, yeah, first is the rumor about cat in his hand. It's true. Yes, my brother did kill my father. Salacious. Yes, finally a truth, which is so funny because the Lannisters assume the Starks did everything. Like, the Starks are bad, they did it, but then it turns out, no, this was a Lannister on Lannister crime. For a son to raise his hand against a father, Sir Emin said. Monstrous. These are dark days in Westeros. I fear for us all with Lord Tywin gone. You feared for us all when he was here. <laughs> Jenna settled her ample rump upon a camp stool, which creaked alarmingly beneath her weight. So I can't help but think of Melee's the monstrous in this line, and he was brought up a little bit earlier when Jamie was all like, Tell me more stories, Brent and Tully. And 
Tyrion, right, he's on the other side of the world, as you brought up in that quote, dreaming of himself as Melee's the monstrous. That that ends up being the reference when he thinks of himself with a second head. Oh, and that does fit. Um, there's also like a anti-parallel almost of Tyrion looking up to Jaime and Jenna looking up to Tywin, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and this, with that, and the Melee's the monstrous really highlights that, huh? Jenna and Emin ask about their son Cleos's death, because yes, they are the persons that made... Cleos and <laughs> Jamie lies. He's like, "Oh, we were attacked by outlaws. Cleos scattered them. He was so brave, cost his life." Emin says, "The boy was always brave. I did say so, you know." And Jenna's like, "His bones should be interred into the Hall of Heroes beneath Casterly Rock." They ask Jamie where he was laid to rest. Jamie lies. He's like, "Beside a stream." And uh we'll get his bones once the warring's over. But then, of course, he thinks bones were bones. Nothing's easier to come by than bones. And, you know, I never thought about it, but the Hall of Heroes versus the Crypts of Winterfell. Definitely. Yeah, that's like the the Golden Winterfell Crypts. Absolutely. There's definitely something going on there and, like, you know, people dreaming about those different places. It also makes me think of something else that happens in this book where when Jamie tells all this. That last line in Sansa's first chapter in The Feast for Crows of, if a lie was kindly meant, there was no harm in it. As mm. Jamie's all like, yeah, Cleos, Cleos was uh, really rad as he was dying. It's like, no, he wasn't. Um, but also, as with this line of bones or bones, is another reminder, in my opinion, of the mystery of where are Eddard Stark's bones after all? Oh, you know that Barbary Dustin is currently flossing with them. She's trying to. She's not there yet. She's <laughs> no, trying to get yet, a hold of yet. it. They're not going to go through her. Those are going to get to Winterfell. I bet Mage has them. Come on now. They they gotta. She's, they gotta. She's putting in effort, though. Dad, no. Speaking of war, Emin starts in with his request to Jamie that they don't scar his new castle, River Run. He worries Davin means to break the castle down with pitch and rams. This is... I'm going to tell you an anecdote, Eliana. Buckle up. Are you ready? Okay. When I was younger, I had to have been like four years old. My best friend came over and we had a swing set and we told my best friend consistently do not walk in front of the glider when someone's on the glider. What does she do? She walks in front of the glider. She gets her teeth like knocked out. My dad has to put them all in her mouth. Long story short, don't ask questions. He shoves them back into her mouth because we're like four or five years old. My mom had a brand new and this is the uh, God, what the 90s. So my mom had a brand new Martha Stewart Kmart wash cloth right and i was like dad you can't use that that's mom's brand new kmart washcloth and she'll be really mad at you if you use that to put my best friend's teeth back in her mouth now as a four or five year old i was more worried about the washcloth right where like my dad was like dude her teeth have fallen out of her mouth kid like that's a little more important right now and i can tell you that emin is not thinking about the teeth he's just like what if my castle burns down? And Jamie's like, dude, if your castle burns down, you have a lot bigger issues to deal with. Like, half of us are probably dead, dipshit. Yeah, Emin needs perspective. Emin is thinking, like, four or five-year-old Chloe, and he's got to be thinking, like, 60-something-year-old not Emin Frey, I guess. Yeah. Emin Frey needs to understand that you may not be able to get a Martha Stewart washcloth anymore, right? But you could still get a washcloth, a fancy one if you want, Emin Frey. You could still have River Run later. They can rebuild it. It'll be fine. They can rebuild everything. But uh, I don't know. If you lose all your armies, 
I'm going to say an asshole thing here. Your friend was four or five. She was going to get new teeth anyway. I mean, that's not how those work, though. It gives damage to, like, the, um... Oh, really? Yeah, you like, they got knocked out with force. So, like, you'd have issues when they grew back and all that. Yeah. So, again, see, like, I'm in Frey would have issues when River Run grew back because you'd have all of these issues that are deep-rooted with these lords that want to murder his ass. Yes, which, understandably so. Yeah. Emin Frey is a murderable guy. So Emin then shoves the decree that is signed by Tommen into Jamie's face. And he's like, I'm the lawful lord of Riveron. And Jenna snaps at him like, put that away. It's nothing but a paper shield, basically, as long as, like, Brendan Tully's still alive and all the, and, like, the other Tully's, too. And then we have this line here of, though she had been a Frey for 50 years, Lady Jenna remained very much a Lannister. Quite a lot of Lannister. <laughs> and apparently Lannister women do not think much of paper shields as we learn and that is exactly what this is right this river run is a paper shield for Emmon. Emmon goes on he tells Jamie Tywin had faith in him and that he means to be firm and fair with his new vassals especially the ones that hadn't shown their full support to join the Frey Lannister regime the Malisters, Vances, Pipers, Brackens, Blackwoods which we know Brackens and Blackwoods are warring with each other and we will get to that in a few chapters he says his father will need to obey him as well. He is the lord of the crossing, but I am the lord of the river run. A son has a duty to obey his father, true, but a bannerman must obey his overlord. Jamie his thinks- priorities. <laughs> right, this is like the most back- Like, this, this right here is just like, no one give this man river run, okay? Jamie thinks, for fuck's sakes. And he's like, I mean, you're not the paramount here. Littlefinger is the Lord Paramount to the Trident named by my father. And Emmons like, ah, but, but. And Jamie's like, no, if you're upset, go take your concerns to Cersei and see what she says. And Jenna, of course, snorts. And she's like, go wait in the van, Emmon. Go outside with the kids. Yeah, and you get a glimpse of like what power means and looks like here, right? Because Emmon Frey is clearly chasing it. A lot of the phrase are, let's be real. And he, so he's, like, coming down, trying to chase it to Riverrun. He's, like, trying to claim his castle, even though he can't even get into it. Whereas Littlefinger, pro- could, he probably could just go to Hall if he wanted, but he, for obvious reasons, does not want to because it's, <laughs> like, probably cursed. But Littlefinger knows, right, what power is. He knows, like, it's not the castle, it's the title, it's and being recognized mm-hmm. as Lord paramount emin frey has confused the actual castle the actual building with the real power we also have this line then which you know there's a there's a relatable first sentence it's hard not to feel contemptuous of emin frey he had arrived at casterly rock in his 14th year to wed a lioness half his age Tyrion used to say that Lord Tywin had given him a nervous belly for a wedding <laughs> gift. Jenna has played her part as well. Jamie remembered many a feast where Emmon sat poking at his food sullenly whilst his wife made ribald jests. With whatever household knight had been seated to her left, their conversations punctuated by loud bursts of laughter. She gave Frey four sons, to be sure. At least she says they are his. No one in Casterly Rock had the courage to suggest otherwise, least of all Sir Emmon. No sooner was he gone than his lady wife rolled her eyes. Wow. I love this so much. And also, I do want to say, like, yes, this is the rumor mill. Like, oh, some of them might not be Jenna's. 
But to play devil's advocate, could some of it be Jamie projecting since, you know, not all of Robert's kids are his, aka all the three that are supposed to be his? He's been doing that a lot, right? Last chapter that he kept being like, dude, like, Amy's kids aren't going to be yours if you don't do anything. And Lance is like, great. Love it. In. And Jamie's like doing that here. And I mean, Cersei does that too, right? With Marjorie. She's all like, maybe she <laughs> and her brother are fucking. They, they've just, these twins just really like projecting onto people. A bit. So once Emin is gone, Jenna turns to Jamie, wondering what the fuck Tywin was thinking while naming Emin Lord of River Run. Jamie responds, his father was probably thinking of your sons. She hopes so and says Emin would be a horrible lord, but Tion would be better if he listens to his mother and not his father. Jamie pours some wine for her, the Lannister way, truly, and asks why she's here. We get some more family drama. It turns out that granting dairy to Lancel and Amy was actually the worst decision, as we've already realized, but turns out there are other reasons for that, too. Like, Cleos was married to one of the pure-blood dairy daughters, Jane, who is Maria's sister, and Amy is only half dairy. Jamie reminds her that Jane is a younger sister and that Tion will get Riverun a better prize than dairy. Jenna calls it a poisoned prize. House Tully's male line still runs strong, and Derry's line is female. Her grandsons will never be secure if the Tully heirs are still alive. You know, it's really funny because there's also, like, Bran and Rickon and Sansa and Arya and Robert Aaron. Like, it might be some foreshadowing, right? Because the Tully line has Edmure, Edmure's kid, Brynden, then revert to Bran if alive, Rickon, as a last call, you have Sansa and Arya after Robert Aaron, and after that, it'd likely revert to Went territory if they're actually still alive, but it could be a little foreshadowing with the whole, the strong female dairy line coming into play. Um, with Lancel leaving, mm. it leaves dairy up in the air, dairy up in the air, dairy air, uh, you could call it, and What's going to happen to Derry? Are the females going to take it back? What's going to happen with River Run? What's going to happen with the North? Hmm. Yeah. If only there was a female in secession. If only. Uh, one who very much looks like a Tully, even. Hmm. Actually, uh, all of them look like Tullys. Yeah, right. Jamie begins to propose a match if Rosalind has a daughter with Tian. But a boy is just as likely, Gemma says. True. And if Brendan Tully survives the siege... He may take Riverrun for himself, or even for Robert Aaron, as you were pointing out. Jamie asks, you know, why the Lord of the Eerie would want Riverrun as well, and Jenna tells him, because men are fucking greedy, okay? Tywin <laughs> should have given Riverrun to Kevin, and Derry to Emmon, and if Tywin had thought to ask her, she would have said as much. But Tywin only spoke to Kevin, and Kevin wanted the safer seat for his son, and she's like, I can't blame him for that, though. Jamie explains that Lancel's throwing that decision out of the gate, though, and renouncing wife and lands and urges her to write Cersei and make her case if she still wants dairy. And Jenna's like, you know what, whatever, it's too late for that. And she waxes on what won't be for a moment. Yeah, she's like, well, listen, we should have seen the Lancel shit coming, but it's honestly not that bad. And we actually got the line that goes, I suppose we should have seen this coming from afar. A life protecting the High Septon is not so different from a life protecting the king, after all. Kevin will be wroth, I fear, as wroth as Tywin was when you got it in your head to take the white. 
She says Kevin still has his son Martin as an heir, and he could marry him to Gatehouse Amy and Lancel's place, Seven Save Us All. We don't really know a ton about Martin, but it does feel kind of like it compares to Materian in a way, as the spare, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of feels like a hard comparison against Jenna's uncle, Tion, who we'll talk about a little towards the end. I like that Jenna is the type of character, though, that's not fretting over this lifelong decision Jamie made ages ago, unlike every other person that we meet in Jamie's plot. And the same with Lancel. This is kind of the first sane motherfucker we get in the story who's like, listen, Jamie, you became a cop and it turned out okay for you. Don't. And she says, you're okay. There's another kid. We'll live. Not a big deal. Like, if everyone could have this much, I don't know, just like chill aura going on about the whole Lancel shit and about the whole Jamie shit, we'd be good. We'd be good. That's true. And I mean, I I like that she points out that Lancel, she's like, I don't know, it's just like the same shit you did, which goes back to the things last chapter where Lancel's like, I wanted to be like you. Jamie does not see how this is like him at all, as we can see by how he's reacting. But yeah, you're right. They're like, I don't know, there's a bunch of us Lannisters still. Good for them. But part of me suddenly realizing, is it pronounced Tyen? Like Lion? But we'll come back to that one day. Oh, Maybe I didn't think about this that. Episode. We'll come back to it later if we have to say his name. Uh, we're going to move on, just as they move on to the Warrior Sons. Jenna wonders why in Seven Hells... Cersei armed them again, and Jamie's like, I'm sure she had reasons, and Jenna's like, what? What fucking reasons would she have? They're all bullshit, and gives us a history lesson on the swords and the stars. Um, Who would even trouble the Targs? Which, as we all know, Jamie and Cersei didn't remember. Uh, <laughs> it's cold out. You guys don't fucking know this? Uh, Aegon tread carefully so that the Faith wouldn't oppose him when he died. The Faith were cornerstones, of course, of many of the rebellions against Aenys and Maegar. Uh, King Maegar put a bounty on them, a dragon for the head of any unrepentant warrior's son and a silver for the scalp of a poor fellow. Thousands of people died, and then Jaehaerys was eventually raised to the throne after Maegar's death. And he's like, you know what? We're going to disband this, and everyone who puts their swords down gets a pardon. And Jamie's like, oh yeah. Yep, I definitely just threw all that out in my pretty little head, just as Cersei did. (laughs) And Jenna says, yep, I know. She asks if Tywin was truly smiling, though, on his funeral beer. And Jamie explains that, no, no, his face was just drying. Yeah, she's really disappointed, of course. Men say that Tywin never smiled, but he smiled when he wed your mother. And when Ares made him hand. When Tarbeck Hall came crashing down on Lady Ellen, that scheming bitch, Tig claimed he smiled then. And he smiled at your birth, Jamie. I saw that with mine own eyes. You and Cersei, pink and perfect as alike as two peas in a pod. Well, except between the legs. What lungs you had. Here is Roar, Jamie grinned. <laughs> Next you'll be telling me how much he liked to laugh. No. Tywin mistrusted laughter. He heard too many people laughing at your grandsire. So Tywin also has trauma. Yeah, so some much. trauma. Poor Jenna. Someone give Jenna a hug too. She got a hug. Yeah, she did. She got one. That's good enough. So, <laughs> this reminds me of a couple moments when we think about mistrusting laughter and comparing Cersei and Tywin and Cersei trying to be Tywin. Of course, the opening lines of Cersei in A Feast for Crows 1 uh, has her sitting on the Iron Throne and 
Later, Tyrion appears, as if from nowhere, pointing at her and howling with laughter. The lords and ladies began to chuckle, too, hiding their smiles behind their hands. Only then did the queen realize she was naked. And in Cersei Five, we get something very close to this. It pleases your grace to make a jest, I see. When I make a jest, I smile. Do you see me smiling? Do you hear laughter? I assure you, when I make a jest, men laugh. Of course, another bit of laughter punctuating Cersei and Jamie's plots under Tywin in Cersei Five. We will talk about when we talk about Jenna's betrothal in a bit here, where Cersei's laughter and happiness at marrying Rhaegar dies as well. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like all of these are very much. I, I do think it's undersold that yes, Cersei and Tywin are quite similar, just not in the ways that Cersei thinks. But yeah. The moment that all smiles died. Jenna says that the siege wouldn't have amused him and asks how Jamie means to make an end of it. And Jamie says, I'm going to make Brendan Tully an offer on good terms. And Jenna's like, good terms require trust, Jamie, and the Lannisters. We don't really have a great record of that, especially you, because you killed your king. Yeah, and... This juxtaposed against Cersei's mindset, literally just pages before this, is everything. She's currently thinking to herself, Robert should have smashed the Ironborn to pieces and made a new island of their skulls, and that he didn't have the stomach to rule, just to bring enemies off their knees and back up. Obviously, Robert quit giving a fuck after a while, as we know, but here Jamie is, trying to do the righteous thing like Robert, offering generous terms in order to subdue the bloodshed coming from the siege, and to keep mm-hmm. filling those vows. Um, I, I just think it's really interesting that Cersei in the last chapter is like, maybe Loras will die, lol. Like, and here's Jamie somehow trying to do the right thing. Yeah, it is very, as you said, Robert-like. And it, it's something that Tywin said people should do. And I never saw Tywin do that. <laughs> you know, like lifting. He's like, yeah, Robert was really good at lifting his enemies off their knees. And it's like, hmm. it's interesting that you would compliment that, Tywin. Um, but yeah, definitely. And Jamie responds to Jenna's scorn, saying that, you know what, fine, fine, I'll kill the blackfish if he doesn't yield. Which he apparently says, actually, with a lot more, uh, a lot gruffer than he intends to. Probably because it sounds awkward trying to be like, yeah, I'm going to kill my childhood hero if he doesn't yield. Um, but he hasn't really internalized that yet. Jenna calls him out on that as well. She's like, empty threats aren't going to scare the blackfish. He's been doing that for like, what, weeks now? So Jamie's like, all right, so what's your advice? And she gives it to him straight. You should probably kill Edmure Tully to be taken seriously. <laughs> Jamie's like, not about that answer, as we know. Jenna's like, that's fine. I know my place. Unlike your sister, which I love. Your sister. <laughs> she asks if Cersei really burnt the Tower of the Hand and that she would have done better to actually burn her own hand. And in my mind, I'm like, whoa, red alert. That's some airy shit, Jenna. Please do not say that. Like, that is some shit she would get off on. What is that? Yeah, Cersei might be like, that's an idea. Yeah, she's just spitballing. She's brainstorming. I get it. Yeah, we're all brainstorming here right now. (laughs) She starts to review Cersei's crew, and she starts shit-talking them. She's like, Giles Rosby, fuck him. Orin Merriweather, fuck him, too. And then she's like, oh, small council, Orain Waters, some bastard. And there's a kettle on the king's guard. She tops she it off. She doesn't even know their last name. She's like, some kettle. Some kettle. She doesn't she- bother to learn them at all. 
I don't either. Uh, she tops them off with the faith crawling around King's Landing, and she's like, man, Kevin should have been the hand. Yeah, I mean, everyone agrees. Cersei technically also agrees, but she didn't want to meet his terms. It is pretty great, though, that we get Jenna's perspective on this right after Cersei's chapter, where she's just, like, <laughs> continuing to do crazy shit, and she's all like, what is happening? <laughs> Jamie says he refused the office, and Jenna responds like, "Did he say why?" And he, he's like, "No, he wouldn't say why." <laughs> Looks off to side. Jenna says that Kevin would never turn from duty, and that something must be awry. And Jamie's like, "Yeah." Uh, internally, he thinks of he remembers when Cersei goes. He knows Cersei had said he knows about us. Which isn't the only reason he left. He really yeah. left. He gave, he he told Cersei his terms, and Cersei was not upfront about them. Which was you know typical Cersei stuff. Jamie offers that you know Kevin's just tired, and Jenna finds this somewhat adequate, saying you know he has every right to be after standing in Tywin's shadow for so long, and it was really hard for my brothers. And Tygett tried to be his own man, but became angry. Jirion liked to make japes to mock the game instead of lose the game. Can't lose if you don't play. But okay, also, Tyrion. you miss 100%. Yeah, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, Jirion. Just saying. But Kevin was different. He knew how things stood. So he took position as Tywin's right-hand man. Jamie asks, uh, so what did you do in Time and Shadow? And Jenna says, it was not a game for girls, for her father's precious princess. She was also Tywin's precious princess until she disappointed him too. And turns out Tywin doesn't like being disappointed. And, I mean, so we find out, turns out Tywin's siblings basically felt the same way about him as his kids did. Great. He's doing amazing. Wow. Dad of the year. Sibling of the year. Doing great. Truly, truly. Big Brother Award. Yeah, she tells Jamie to do what Tywin would have done, and Jamie suddenly hears himself asking if she had loved him. Let me get this passage. I was seven when Walder Frey persuaded my lord father to give my hand to M. His second son, not even his heir. Father was himself a third-born son, and younger children craved the approval of their elders. Frey sensed that weakness in him, and father agreed for no better reason than to please him. My betrothal was announced at a feast with half the West in attendance. Ellen Tarbeg laughed, and the Red Lion went angry from the hall. The rest sat on their tongues. Only Tywin dared speak against the match. A boy of ten. Father turned white as mare's milk, and Walder Frey was quivering. She smiled. How could I not love him after that? That's not to say I approved of all he did, or much enjoyed the company of the man he became, but every little girl needs a big brother to protect her. Tywin was big, even when he was little. She gave a sigh. Who will protect us now? Jamie kissed her cheek. He left a son. Aye, he did. That's what I fear the most, in truth. That was a queer remark. Why should you fear? Jamie, she said, tugging on his ear. Sweetling, I have known you since you were a babe at Joanna's breast. You smile like Jerrion, and you fight like Tig, and there's some Kevin in you, else you would not wear that cloak. But Tyrion is Tywin's son, not you. 
I said so once to your father's face, and he would not speak to me for half a year. Men are such thundering great fools, even the sort who come along once in a thousand years. Yeah, it's been a minute, right, guys? It's been a minute. It has been a minute. You all like that? You all like that? <sighs> we haven't passaged in a while, you know? We haven't been passage in it? Passionate? We've just pass- We've just been passing it along. Oh my god. Passing it by. Passing it off. I don't know. Whatever. I think this passage is such, like, when you think of Jamie's arc in A Feast for Crows, this passage has to come to mind, right? There's so many little bombs dropped in here. And I think mm-hmm. breaking down Jenna's betrothal politically is super important because it's such a slap in the face to the Reigns. If we go back in history, Roger Rain, the red line of Castamere's sister, Ellen Rain, is betrothed to Tywald Lannister. Tywald is the eldest son of Rohan Weber from the prequels, right? The Duncan Egg books, Drunken Egg, and Gerald Lannister, twin of Tyon Lannister, or Tyon Lannister. Tywald dies during the peak uprising in 233 AC. In his dying breath, he asks his brother, Tyon, to take care of Ellen Rain. Tyon squired for Prince Egg V during the uprising, and he marries her in a double wedding with his little brother, Titus, who marries Jane Marbrand. Tyon dies in the Blackfyre Rebellion and leaves Titus as the heir to Lannister, and Ellen is a widow. Ellen then decides to claim she's been knocked up to hold on to power, but her tummy eventually shows them the truth, as it does. Most of the reigns are sent back to Castamere, but Jaehaerys and Alysanne's widow's law that was enacted in 52 AC still stood. As I like to call it, the sense and sensibility law, the Dashwood law, blah blah blah. Ellen must be treated in the same manner as she was before her widowhood, right? As far as gold, her lifestyle has to be kept up, etc., During this time of her using the Widow's Law to her advantage, she begins to lose influence as people come to love Jane Marbrand as the new Lady Lion. Lord Toad, the court jester, called it the War of the Wombs, as Jane and Ellen's wombs seem to be in utter competition to shove out kids, with Jane winning in the end, but also kind of losing because she dies during the 240s. She makes one last jump for power. She tries to bed Titus Lannister, is refused. Gerald, within a fortnight, sends her away to marry Walderon Tarbeck, who already has heirs, so she really can't sink her filthy claws into his fortune. Fast forward, Titus becomes lord in 244 AC. Ellen remains unwelcome at the Rock, and she literally has her brothers requesting loans from the Lannisters to funnel her money. Titus is so stupid and lets this fly, right? He's like totally just unabashedly dumb about it. He's like, okay. <laughs> House Rain and Tarbeck rise back to power because Ellen helps them rebuild with all the Lannister gold. In 261 AC, all of this comes to a head, and Tywin demands the loans to be repaid as the Lord. They refuse, they take their own hostages, like Stafford and a couple other people we know, and they start a revolt against the Lannisters. Well, we know what happens after that, right? So, knowing all of this as the background, and since the Lannisters had not followed through on the Rain-Lannister union, Tytos betrothing Jenna in front of an entire hall of Westerlands to a Riverlander, a Frey, no less, is a huge smack in the face. Very embarrassing to Jenna. Walder Frey knew Tytos was a weak bitch, used that to the advantage, 
Jenna was their only daughter. That's a huge bargaining chip. All the lords and CK2 players that are listening probably know that you don't give your bargaining pussy away. That's what you can marry into a more royal house because it doesn't matter. If your daughter gets married to a royal, there's no way they're going to take your line. They're busy, right? Like, you save that. You save that pussy for the pedestal. Emin is eighth in line to the secession. A bit farther on when he was born, too. The phrase can't offer anything to the Lannisters other than a fuck you to the other river lords. So immediately after this, Titus backpedals, and he sends Kevin to serve in Castamere as a page for the Red Lion, and then as a squire later on. And then he sends Tywin to serve as cupbearer in Aegon's court in King's Landing to keep him busy and away from home drama. So now that we've done all this, it brings up another betrothal recently talked about in Cersei 5 that Jenna was also there for. The prince is going to be my husband, she had thought, giddy with excitement. And when the old king dies, I'll be the queen. Her aunt had confided that truth to her before the tourney. You must be especially beautiful, Lady Jenna told her, fussing with her dress. For at the final feast, it shall be announced you and Prince Rhaegar are betrothed. And later on in the passage, we get... Her laughter died at tourney's end. There had been no final feast... No toast to celebrate her betrothal to Prince Rhaegar. Only cold silences and chilly looks between the king and her father. Later, when Aerys and his son and all the gallant knights departed for King's Landing, the girl had gone to her aunt in tears, not understanding. Your father proposed the match, Lady Jenna told her, but Aerys refused to hear of it. You're my most able servant, Tywin, the king said, but a man does not marry his heir to his servant's daughter. Dry those tears, little one. Have you ever seen a lion weep? Your father will find another man for you. A better man than Rhaegar. Damn. History with Chloe. It, it really it does come full circle, right? Like, as mm-hmm. to all that, and in a way, kind of, I don't know if it's karmic, right? Uh, I'm realizing now that at the end, though, the, the line there with Cersei, it reminds me a little of, uh... The turn your hair and all? Stark. Oh, I was thinking that Stark telling Sansa, I'm going to find you someone better than the crown prince. Oh. And see, <laughs> I was thinking of uh, the moment all the smiles died. Hmm, also that. And and what you were saying earlier about how much Tywin hated laughter. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it comes there too, right? Like, he hates laughter and he's pretty mad for obvious reasons. Yeah. He's been working towards this. And Ares was a huge asshole. So, not yeah. wrong. Yeah, it, it is really interesting to see how all of that comes to roost, um, and paints us like this picture of Tywin. And I mean, he he's quite fearsome, right? But as you said, like, and in that in that passage you read aloud, there's a reason that his siblings still like kind of looked up to him for all of this. They felt that he was their big brother and protected him. But I guess you know who protects who protects. Tywin's kids from Tywin, right? And I think that's a big part of the second half of that passage. Because, so I'm not, I'm not a the Lannister twins are secret Targaryens uh, believer. I am, however, a Tyrion Targaryen agnostic. I think that the World of Ice and Fire timeline uh, that it gave us did quite a bit to, in my opinion, squash the former. Whereas I think leaves the latter open, and I, I feel like there's something to be said. Like, I, I feel like. If George wanted that open, he would have, like, done something with the timeline to make that more 
likely, right? Like, the, it just seems like an Occam's razor. If he really wanted it, like, you wouldn't need to have to speculate, oh, maybe something happened in those three years, right? Between when Joanna was sent away and Ares uh, was still in King's Landing. But anyways, and, and the birth of the twins. So, anyways, um, I do think that there's something to be said of this and, like, the things that happen in Jon's storyline of, like, you know, who is Jon Snow's father? And I don't mean, like, who contributed semen to make Jon Snow. I mean, like, who was Jon Snow's actual daddy? Like, the one who raised him and whose footsteps he ends up really following in, whose values he grows up with. And I think that's that's absolutely Ned Stark, right? Jenna is saying that this is the case for Tyrion, not regarding bastardy or bloodlines, but who amongst all of you Lannister children is truly following in the steps of Tywin Lannister? Cersei thinks it's her, just like in the wrong ways. But And, and that's why Jenna's so afraid then yeah. of Tyrion. She's painting a picture of the fear and the coldness and the distance that the previous generations felt from their eldest brother. Tyrion yearns for love. As Titos did, uh, as as Jenna points out, right, as the third child, yearned for approval, but not the third son. Titus was a third son. And, you know, she's like, what the fuck? Did you actually ask me, like, if we love Tywin? She's like, yeah, you know, who cares? Yes, we did. He he stood up for us. But, you know, there's that side. I, I, I'm going to quickly make a side note of, like, Jenna says that a sister needs an older brother to protect her. And it's, I think, really sad that... A lot of the examples that we see in this series, Song of Ice and Fire, don't do that, right? Like, mm-hmm. the series didn't protect Daenerys fully and ends up abusing her. He's the one who hurts her. Rob Stark died too soon uh, to save his sisters and, in fact, doesn't trade to try and secure their safety. But yet, they all still draw strength from his memory. And Jamie, he's not the eldest, but he does protect Cersei for many years. And I think that's part of what she hates as she starts to feel like he has stopped playing that role for her. But anyway, back on track about who's Tywin's kids and who's Tywin's true son, right, or whatever. Jenna knows what kind of moves Tywin would have made. And then Emmon calls Tyrion killing Tywin monstrous. And Jenna doesn't dispute that. But for an action like that, for Jenna to say that Tyrion is Tywin's son, right, that's telling us, like, who they are. And when she accepts, like, yeah, okay, all right. Tyrion, Tyrion killed his dad, and that's what she thinks, maybe, being asked, you know, when she talks about what the duty is of a Lannister and what's asked of them, right? And in previous chapters, we've discussed how a lot of Jamie's clothing uh, choices display the struggle of who he is, whether he's a Lannister or a Kingsguard. And I think it is quite noteworthy that in the earlier chapters, we get one facet of what is being a Lannister with Cersei. Then in the last chapter, the, the previous chapter, Jamie's learning a bit more about that um, and his family, such as like Kevin and Lancel. And now again, you know, he's making this tour of his Lannister down by talking to other Lannisters. Now he's talking to Davin and Gemma. And throughout all this, we keep getting more perspectives on what it does mean to be part of this family. And I, as Jamie cycles through and weighs and decides, like, he's just kind of like, is this, is this what I want to be? Yeah. That, that's the big thing. I mean, he's getting the truth of who Tywin was from the people that lived with him even before he lived with him. Yeah. It is interesting. He's going through something now in his 30s that a couple of the other other characters are going through, right? Um, at a much younger age in a, in a different way, right? Like, Daenerys can only get to know 
her father, her parents through stories because they died when she was a baby. And as we're going to see, like, I think a lot of the Stark kids are going to learn different things about their parents prior. And we see, we see it with a bunch of the other characters, right? Um, Hell, we already see so. it with Arya in A Storm of Swords when Edric Dane is telling her, oh, yeah, your dad bonked Ashara Dane, dude. I mean, I don't know how to tell you, Arya. And she's like, no, he didn't. Shut up. And and Bran learning about like all these stories and and the reads being like, your, your parents really never told you these things about uh, the tourney at Harrenhal? And they don't tell him explicitly like what happens, I guess. But, you know, Bran's obviously probably going to see some things going on in the past, too, with his family. Mm-hmm. Like, literally see it. So you get that element uh, kind of running through Jamie's storyline as he has to recontextualize his identity in the context of his family. And it's quite a journey I think he's going to have because when he recontextualizes his place as a Lannister and his role as a Lannister and what being a Lannister means, I think the only way to deal with it is to realize it doesn't mean fucking shit. And I think that's true for many of these families, right? Like your family and who you are is who you decide it to be, which is part of why I'm a Tyrion Targaryen agnostic. And I discussed that that more in depth on an episode. Yeah, I just kind of, I, I I think that you know you could be agnostic to things like theories, and I, I discussed that more in depth on uh I don't know a long time ago when the, I was talking about fire and blood on history of Westeros. So yeah, no, I think Tyrion is the better choice for that theory. However, even if it's true, I don't think we'll ever know. I think it'll be something that's just up in the air that George put out there for us to question because. That This passage right here is meant to make us question it. It's meant to give us kind of this false information and make us go, wait, what? What do you mean by that, Jenna? Because obviously Jenna wouldn't drop some bomb of Tyrion is really the son and you're actually Aerys' kid. Like, she wouldn't just drop that walk away and we'd never hear about it. But now we're thinking about it and we're never not going to think about this passage. And that's what George did here. Yeah, and I, th- I th- for me, I think the larger message and theme is it doesn't matter necessarily. It matters and it doesn't matter. Like, the, the weight that you put into your last name and blood and that legacy is what you put into it. Yeah. And how it shapes you, of course, in your upbringing, but you can pick and choose, and that's what Jamie's trying to learn to do right now. Pick and choose... What what parts of being a Lannister are worth keeping? I guess that's uh that's something he's gonna have to keep exploring as he walks through the Riverlands, as he strolls through on honor and glory through the Riverlands, huh? <laughs> Which one do you think is his favorite horse? Do you think he's oh, gonna get honor. them tattooed onto himself? Honor. Yeah, that's true. It's honor. Fuck glory. Yeah. What's your yeah, favorite? Right. Honor or glory? Which one do you choose, honor. Eliana? Yeah. There's, there's way better jokes about honor. <laughs> so, well, that's Jamie 5 in A Feast for Crows. <sighs> and now we have to go on, go off in our lives tonight and think about that. Thanks, Eliana. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. We were so excited to have you tune in today to this. This was a, this was a doozy. There's a lot here to break apart and 
I'm really excited to have Don Willian to break apart Jamie Six in the beginning of July. Yes, and I mean, that's going to be a, quite a big encounter. That's a very, I think, pivotal chapter, right? As he talks to his childhood hero, the Blackfish. <sighs> that's big. I mean, that's his, uh, that's his Ken doll. Oh my god, it is. War Ken doll. <laughs> it's a superhero. Yeah, because we don't get to see Jamie interact with the other ones because they're all dead, so. He's got this one. This one's yeah. like, fuck you, Jamie. <laughs> all right. Well, keep an eye out on our social media for some upcoming updates, like maybe this fan art that we talked about at the top of the episode will yes. post for all. You can follow us over on Twitter at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N, or send us an email if you have your own fan art or your own episode of Girls Gone Canon that you want to share with mm-hmm. us. Uh, you can check that out at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N, at gmail.com. Yes, please send us uh, your fan art and your tribute episodes. Been looking forward to those. It's been a while and somehow no one sent us one. Um, but if you would like to listen to non-tribute episodes of Girls Gone Canon, you can find us on platforms such as Podbean, where this is all hosted. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, wherever else people have placed us on. <laughs> yes, and make sure you check out Patreon. Like we said, this month's episode is going to be for $5 and up patrons special episodes monthly. This one is about his dark materials, La Belle Sauvage. First couple chapters. Yes, we're excited to cover some of that and keep moving into that book as we go. You can check that out over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. As always, I have been one of your hosts. And I've been another one of your hosts. We are both Chloe and Eliana. She didn't say her name. Oh, shit. I didn't. I'll I'll speak for us. We're soulbound now. Thank God. Thank God. You're the Tywin to my Jenna. Good night, everyone. Um... Nope. I said what I said. That was it.